Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. And welcome to the latest installment of Freak Flag Flying on Osiris Media, my wide-ranging conversation with singer-songwriter David Crosby about his extraordinary life and legacy, a legacy of probing, adventurous, and shimmeringly beautiful recordings with bands like The Birds, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and later groups like CPR and The Lighthouse Band, all of which broadened and deepened the emotional language of popular music permanently. I'm overjoyed and in fact ecstatic to say that our next conversations will mainly focus on David's all-time masterpiece, his 1971 solo album, If I Could Only Remember My Name, which was really anything but a solo album and featured some of the best musical minds of David's generation. It was also a very complex time in David's life. He had become a superstar after CSNY's triumphant debut at Woodstock and the release of CSN's debut album and their follow-up with Neil Young, Deja Vu. But at the same time, David was in deep grief because the love of his life, a lively and beautiful and intelligent young woman named Christine Gale Hinton, had died in a car accident while taking her cat to the vet. The sessions for If I Could Only Remember My Name became a kind of sanctuary where friends like Jerry Garcia, Grace Slick, Phil Lesh, and Joni Mitchell could offer him comfort in the realest way possible by making great music together. The album has now been re-released by Rhino Records in an enhanced 50th anniversary edition with awesome bonus tracks and new liner notes by me. As I explained in previous episodes, by the sheer power of synchronicity, David and I ended up having these conversations at the very recording studio where most of If I Could Only Remember My Name was recorded because the studio we were planning on using was closed for COVID-19. So we ended up talking at what was then called Wally Hyders and is now called Hyde Street Studios in San Francisco. Wally Hyder's was a very special place with a very groovy vibe, and many of my favorite albums, including The Grateful Dead's American Beauty, Jefferson Airplane's Volunteers, and Paul Kantner and Grace Slick's Sunfighter and Baron Von Tolbooth, were recorded there. As soon as we walked in, David sat down at the piano and played Delta as if he felt right at home again. Do you remember being here 50 years ago? 
<laughs> That's a complex question. Yes, <laughs> it should be very simple, but it's yes. a complex question. Yes, I do, man. I remember yeah. it uh, quite well, actually. Uh, a couple of the homeless people out front, or I think, are the, the same the ones. Same guys. Yeah. Uh, uh, I remember it. Uh, God, it's, you know, it's very, very crucial times for me. It, it really, a lot of stuff going on. Uh, we had just done Deja Vu here, and uh, and it was. Uh, Intense experience. I mean, working with those guys is intense, always. We were always competing with each other, and, and we were always uh, loving it, and we were into it way deep. Yeah. And then I stayed here and did, uh, if I could only remember my name, my name, you know, I had all these songs, and I had only used up two of them for Deja Vu, so there I was. And I had a lot of friends a lot of friends in this town. And uh, so I stayed in here. It was a safe place for me to be. And I was a little distraught right then, so safe was really important. And uh, my friends came. And your friends, for those who don't know, included Jerry Garcia, Phil Lesh, Paul Kantner, Grace Slick, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Graham Nash, Michael Shreve, Laura Allen. It was basically the cream of Bay Area electrified folk musicians, more or less. <laughs> uh, and Phil Lesh, who I spoke to just uh, the other week, actually, about this album, uh, described Wally Hyders as jammer heaven. That was the great thing about it, and that's why, that's why it has such a huge place in my heart. Everybody was just so into collaborating. It was, it was like, you know, five years before that, or back in the jazz era, the bands would compete with one another. You know, it, it wasn't like that with these guys. It was like total collaboration. Let's make some music together. When nobody cared whose name was on it. I mean, that's like a, a true kind of Haight-Ashbury uh, 60s. In a way, it was the culmination of all of that that happened during the 60s musically. It was Jammer Heaven, yeah. That's fair. Phil's, Phil's not wrong about that. There, mm -hmm. were, there were tons of good musicians doing tons of records here mm -hmm. of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And so there was a really nice cross-section of different kinds of music and different people and different ways of going about it. Mm -hmm. It was a very alive scene, very alive. Yep. Now, Paul Kantner, you know, deadheads and tape collectors know this, but Paul Kantner is sort of unofficially named the jamming that was going on here, uh, that group of people, the Planet Earth Rock and Roll Orchestra. I know that that was never an official band name or anything like that, but uh, people who circulate those tapes know those tapes as the Pero tapes because of that name. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. Well, here's what happened. Yeah. Because it was a very loose and very unstructured, and because I had a ton of money, yeah. and uh, so I didn't care what it cost. I would just come in every night and see what happened. We recorded a lot of stuff. Some of it was just junk. Some of it was partially there. Kids and Dogs is another good example. Kids and Dogs was no words, but a fully fleshed out you know, composition as music. It, it, it holds up. And uh, it should have been on the original record. I, I caved into somebody else's ideas there. I shouldn't have. But, it's, a, uh, it's a fantastic track. Well, you know the moment in it that I love the best? Jerry and I were playing that game, right? We'd each play a note, and we didn't know what note the other guy was going to play. 
right? It was just a pulse, like one, two, three, play. One, two, three, play. And we wouldn't know what the other guy was going to play, so we did not know what kind of chord it would make between us, which is very experimental kind of music. And it was, we hit one that was so scrumptious that it actually made Jerry laugh in the middle of playing. He couldn't, you know, he couldn't hold it. He, st- he could hear him. He goes, <laughs> yeah. He couldn't one of the great it. chuckles of all time. Yeah, one of the great <laughs> chuckles of all time recorded. There was a lot of that. It was a, we had because there was no financial pressure at all. I could have stayed in here in the studio for years if I wanted. I could have set up a bed. I probably did. Uh, so that we could just goof off, be the musician, stoner, explorer, friends that we were, and. Uh, you know, if you leave the door open, stuff's going to walk in. 
and we had the door pretty wide open. So I, I wish I could have continued it. I wish it, we were almost doing it to this day. The, the thing with Jerry, it didn't matter what we went at. If we sat down with two guitars, and something would happen every goddamn time. Garcia was a, a totally exceptional kind of human being and musician. He was freer of preconception than almost any musician I've ever run into. He really didn't have an agenda. He'd go anywhere. Anywhere you could take it, he could go. And he could do it in a way that was coherent and that made sense. He was fearless. There's a good word for it, Garcia, fearless. Abso-freaking-lutely without fear, you know? And that produced stuff. Uh, every person that you listed there, and there are some others too, uh, David Freiberg, uh, Jack Cassidy, what a wonderful musician he is. Yeah, Yorma. Yorma. Yeah. You know, these are all my friends, and they... The relationship with all of them was good, and it was all different. Each one of them had a different way of connecting and a different flavor of chemistry with me. But they all had a chemistry, and we all loved songs. If there was one unifying thing about all the people that you listed, songs are just holy to us, man. They're like religion to other people. They're stuff we really believe in. 
they they take you on a voyage, they lift you, they they teach you. They express shit that you desperately need to get off your chest. They're wonderful. And they're our life. Songs, me and Jerry, that's our life. That's excellent. And the same for all those other people. Mitchell, probably the greatest song creator of our times. I would give her, yeah, best. Best singer-songwriter alive. And uh, I did not know until I did research for liner notes for If I Could Only Remember My Name, which will hopefully uh, be included, (laughs) that you really had a lot to do with giving Joni a leg up at the beginning. Um, Everybody knows that you produced her first album, 
But what I didn't know until recently was that after you met her in Coconut Grove in a coffee house and, you know, walked in this coffee house and saw this unbelievably beautiful woman singing unbelievably beautiful songs, that you uh, convinced her and Elliot Roberts to go to Los Angeles um, so that she could get a recording contract. Something that you've never gotten credit for because most people don't know what happened was that Joni Mitchell had been already passed over by the major labels in New York. Um, Elliot Roberts had given them um, demo tapes and what they would say, it's, it's almost hilariously uh, awful what, what they would say to Elliot when he tried to convince them to give her a contract. They would say, no, I'm sorry, uh, it's, that kind of thing is not selling right now, but could I have an extra copy of the demo tape for my wife? <laughs> yeah. In other words, they kind of knew but, it was good. Yeah, they you knew know? it was good, but it's not what's selling. Right. Yeah. But so you convinced Joni to move out to L.A. to try your contact list. But she didn't have to move. I brought her. Oh, okay. I, had, I rented a place, and we were together, and so, you know, yeah, yeah. I said, come on, let's go. Yeah, yeah. And I, I knew what would happen because I know songs. I, mm. I don't know much, man. I'm not... I'm not brilliant, and I'm not fantastically well-educated. I don't have a degree or anything. Uh, but I know about songs. I do. I have a pretty good sense of songs. And I knew what I was hearing. Wasn't any question in my mind. The thing that I did do correctly was keep everybody else off it. She was a folk singer, right, which means you're playing an indicated arrangement. There's a sort of a bass line with your thumb. There's a kind of a horn parts with your top two fingers there, and she was brilliant at it. Her arrangements of her stuff were scintillating. They were absolutely wonderful. And I, I didn't want a bunch of ham-handed nincompoops trying to make it sound like, you know, the last pop hit. Uh, I did get Stephen to play on Night in the City because he can play a 6-8 bass part better than most other human beings. And, but I, what I didn't want him to do was water it down and make it ordinary. So I wanted to keep it in her hands and with her flavor. And, you know, it worked kind of. Mermaids live in colonies 
Yeah, no, it's it's beautiful. Um, something I also didn't realize until I kind of worked out the timeline of events was that her album came out just five days before you recorded a bunch of demos for songs that ended up on If I Could Only Remember My Name. So her, you know, her spell, her musical spell was kind of still, you know, over. She had a strong effect, man, but you got to understand, Mm -hmm. here's the effect. Yeah. I'd write a really good song. Yeah. She'd come home. Yeah. I'd say, honey, listen to this. Yeah. And I'd sing her this really good song. And she'd say, oh, darling, that's beautiful. What do you think of these? And she'd sing me three better songs. Oh, God. Three much better songs. Yeah, yeah. And she wrote them last night. Right. And it was like crusher, you know, it was like. You want to quit? Yeah. Uh, I fortunately did not quit, but it was educational as hell. A lot of songwriters affected me strongly, man. Pete Seeger affected me strongly. Uh, early, my early guys, you know, affected me really a lot. Where did you get your interest in open tunings? That's a good question. Uh, a guy whose name, if, if we're lucky, will come back to me from the Midwest, showed me the Guinevere tuning. Oh, really? Ebed Gett. Oh, wow. Which gave me Guinevere and Deja Vu. Yeah. When you tune your guitar string, the bottom string there uh, on, in regular tuning, mm-hmm. when you tune it down to D, mm-hmm. that's the beginning of the slippery slope. <laughs> right, right, right. The minute you change the tuning, you realize, oh, my God, I could do anything here. Yeah. I don't have to have it this way. Yeah. Why, this one could be over here, and then it would do this. It opens a lot of doors. It also creates a ton of problems. And if you're not flexible enough to work out new chord positions for each tuning for each chord, uh, then you can't do it. Yeah. But for me, that was natural and easy. And uh, and it gives you sounds, you know, I heard these chords that the piano players that I admired, the McCoy Tyners of this world mm. and the Bill Evanses and the, mm. you know, the guys who could really play. Mm. Really play. Mm. Deep. Deep guys. Evans. Deep. Deep. <laughs> Very deep. Deep guy. Yeah. Uh, well, McCoy. Deep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I heard them play chords that were like tone clusters. They yeah. were just rich yeah. and, and dissonant and spangly and bright and giving off sparks. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. were. Beautiful. Absolutely. And, uh, and I wanted them. I wanted those chords. 
and I couldn't play them as a closed chord jazz player. I mm-hmm. couldn't recreate them with six notes because I only got five fingers and right. I can't really play with my thumb. And right. I couldn't do it. I wasn't yeah. good enough guitar player to duplicate what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But in a tuning, mm. all the rules are changed. Mm-hmm. And I could. I could get inversions of the chord that sounded like that chord that McCoy played that mm. was like a shaft of light hitting my brain. And you had seen McCoy play with John Coltrane. I had. A, back in Chicago, right? I, I had, and I'd, yeah. I'd seen Bill Evans play too, mm. and just by himself with a trio. Oh, and wow. yeah. I, 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 you know, it's good to want, it's good to feel the need to grow, it's good to mm-hmm. hear stuff that you can't play that you know you're going to have to learn how to play mm-hmm. because that makes you grow. Mm-hmm. And the more you grow, the better stuff you do. At the end of both Song With No Words and Orléans, both tunes kind of ebb into harmonics. And I was talking with Joel Bernstein about the importance of the fact that you were tuning guitars by hand, not with digital tuners, and that's what gives the guitars on that album their unique luminosity. Can you explain why tuning by ear was so important to that album? Okay, tuning by ear works this way. If you have two strings and you're trying to tune them to the same note, when you get them close, there's a beat note. There's a wah-wah-wah-wah-wah kind of going on. The closer to being in tune that they get, the more it slows down. And when it slows down and stops, you're in. Okay, now we can hear that. You tune your head to it, you can hear it. So you know when it's in. Now, the other way you know is that when you get six strings in tune like that to where they really are in tune, they generate overtones. Okay, your guitar will be tuned to, let's say you're playing these notes. One, two, three, four, five. One, five. Okay, 
Now, if those are really in tune, you'll get above it. Why? Because that's how the fucking sound works. And when you hear those overtones above it, you are smoking. You are in the pocket. You are definitely flying. And, and, you know, for those of us that do play acoustic guitar a lot and for whom that is utterly magical, you know, it's a, it's a, a holy grail. You seek it a lot. It's one of the reasons you play in open tunings because you can get them there and they will generate overtones of their own. And it's, it's like God talking to you, man. It's really good. It's really good. This is one of the, sort of one of the big questions that I have about if I could only remember my name. I've always loved uh, the wordless tracks like Tamil Pius High at about three, Song with No Words, Kids and Dogs eventually when it came out. Um, what did you, like that was kind of a bold move, you know? It was, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's kind of the meeting place between like Miles's modal jazz and folk music with a chorus and what were you hearing like what were you basing those songs on when people like David Geffen said like what is this why don't you write words for it what were you thinking I liked it the way it was it spoke to me in another way and now I'm a words guy Mm -hmm. I like words I wrote a bunch Mm -hmm. of words that I'm proud of but I would get a melody and a set of changes like Tam High and it would knock me out. I'd just say, geez, this is pretty. Mm-hmm. And I would hear the stacks on the melody. And the stacks come from me listening to jazz records and hearing jazz horn sections. That's, that's where they'd come from. 
But the thing of doing it with vocals, just I did it because I could, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, we would sit in here in this room or one just like it, mm -hmm. and I would stack shit. And I, I didn't know this, but I, I have an unusual sense of, of how to stack things. I don't build the same kind of stacks that other people do. Mm -hmm. Normally it's a you know, major triad. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, triad for me is a different thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Uh, so <laughs> got you kicked out of the birds. They said. So, just kidding. But I, I had I would sit in here and I built these really rich stacks. You know, yeah. um, Orleans. Yeah. Stacks in Orleans. Those are that's nine vocals. Wow, and that's all you. Orleans is all, a solo all track. You. All you. Well, uh, all of those are all me. Uh, all Tam High. Yeah, right, Tam High. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'd swear there was somebody here. Yeah, it's probably yeah, the greatest really piece of music I ever thought up in my life. Yeah. ever. Yeah. Probably my top, right there. Mm -hmm. That took me thirteen minutes. Yeah, just sitting here with that chamber that I was asking him about. Yeah, playing with that, and then I felt this presence in the room, and I was it was like an electric wire being plugged into me. Yeah, and uh. I sang that shit. I don't even know how I did that. I don't know where it came from. I don't know who thought those fucking changes up. I think it's my best piece of music. It's a sad subject, but let's talk about what kind of visitation you were having. Um, one of the reasons why this was such a complex uh, session for you was that it was both very beautiful and fun and hanging out with all your friends, but you were also still grieving your, the first love of your life, Christine, the first great love of your life, uh, who died in a car accident bringing her cats to the vet. Um, before Deja Vu, actually. Before yeah. you were recording Deja Vu. Just before you. Right. And so it must have been difficult. For, like, apparently, I've heard that you did almost cut my hair, that sort of, you know, famously rough, intense vocal, just a couple days after she died, um, I've heard. Uh, but in any case, you were heavily grieving, and it was a very difficult time for you, and you'd never gone through anything like that before. Um, so... When you did, I'd swear there was somebody here, which is sort of the most um, 
overt elegy in her memory, you were receiving her presence in the echo chamber here at Wally Hyder's. And yeah, at least that's how I perceived it, yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, it, look, it happens to everybody. Yeah. We all lose somebody. Yeah. And it's a bitch. Uh, there's no easy way out, uh, about it. And I'm not trying to whine and snivel about it because I've, yeah. I've had other friends lose their child. Right. And it's even harder. Yeah. You know, uh, it did break my fucking heart. I had no, you're right, I had no experience to deal with it, and and uh, it creamed me completely. I was yeah. devastated. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I had a lifesaver, and it was here, and it was the music, and it was, I don't, I don't want to glorify him past reason here, but a lot of it was Sherry. Mm-hmm. He was very kind mm-hmm. to me, and um, he knew exactly what was going on. Mm-hmm. Very perceptive guy, as you know. Mm-hmm. Talk to him too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't want to make too big a deal out of it, but it it, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. I don't. Well, she was just twenty one. I mean, it, it, very sad. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the more time passes after it, the more right. it, it puts it in perspective, and I see right. other people dealing with shit that's as bad or worse. Right. And they keep their heads up and keep trucking. Right. You know, I always think of Clapton. This kid went out the window. Right, right. This is, Clapton's trying to stay sober. Right. He didn't, right. He didn't break. Right. He didn't go, go get loaded. Right, right. I think I would have. Yeah. I think, you know, that kind of bravery in the face of a horror. Mm-hmm. An absolute just life destroyer of an of a moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, other people have had to deal with pretty terrible shit too, and done a better job of dealing with it than I did. Mm. But I, I admit it, it knocked me up, knocked me in the dirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I had the music to hold on to. You know, yeah. when I say I'm a lucky cat, I'm. I'm telling you the truth. I really am. Yeah. If I hadn't had the music to hold on to, I probably wouldn't be here. But I did. Yeah, yeah. And it saved my butt. Yeah. Again and again and again and again yeah, yeah, yeah. and then over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, something uh, even you didn't know and I didn't know until I talked to Phil Lesh the other day was that he had seen you with the birds uh, uh he went to a bird show by himself in North Beach, and he told me that he was kind of pissed that you guys didn't play Mr. Tambourine Man, but that he danced his ass off anyway. Um, and he didn't even ever tell you that. No. And then apparently he met you again at Monterey Pop through uh, Phil's then-girlfriend, Florence Nathan, who is now the photographer, Rosie McGee. Um, and Phil told me that as soon as he met you, he felt like he'd met, quote, and this is going to be in the notes, a fellow traveler, someone he could really talk to. Yeah, um, I'm sure that was the case. Yeah. So uh, what was it like at that point? Like, that was bef- this was a couple of years before this. You were out of the birds. We talked about that uh, on one of our last podcasts and, you know, why you were thrown out. It was complicated and you were being difficult and they were being difficult. But... At the same time, you were 
very, you were in a very good position in a way, uh, even if, you know, the bird's money started running out at some point, because you were a popular guy in uh, Los Angeles and in the scene in Los Angeles. And one of the things that Elliot Roberts pointed out was that you really helped people like Elliot and David Geffen to put together a bunch of great singer-songwriters and practically launch a new industry within the crumbling, you know, <laughs> edifice of the old uh, folk music industry. Um, and the old pop industry. You get, right. Bands, when we were trying to put all this together, bands were like Paul Revere and the Raiders. Right. They wore uniforms. They danced on their amps. Right, right. They sang songs that were really bad. Right. And you had toured with them, correct? Oh, Paul Revere and the Rear Doors? I yes, that's what we called yes, them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. But uh, so we were pretty strange for LA. And, mm. and I, but you know how we felt about it was the reason I was very taken with the San Francisco bands is that we didn't like Hollywood and we mm. didn't like their approach to music and we didn't like pop music. We didn't like the wear uniforms and dancing on your amps kind of thing. That right. was a complete anathema to us. We wanted to go utterly, totally different direction. Right. And the San Francisco bands were doing exactly that. Right. There was no Hollywood going on at all. Right, right. Uh, and they were pursuing the music and the magic. Right. And that's what we wanted to do. And so, yeah, we were... Unusual in LA. We were going against the flow. We were silent swimming upstream in, in LA. In San Francisco, man, we were right in the pack. Please join us for the next installment of Freak Flag Flying, which will probe even more deeply into the glorious, soul-healing music of David Crosby's If I Could Only Remember My Name, including some rare, behind-the-scenes looks at the making of the album and a forgotten, psychedelic manifesto, David wrote, that anticipated his advice to his friend Beatle George Harrison in the song that many people feel is the high point of this wonderful album, Laughing. This Freak Flag Flying podcast was brought to you by Osiris Media. Find the previous episodes and other wonderful podcasts archived at OsirisPod.com. Thank you, David and Jan Crosby. Thank you also to Hyde Street Studios' Jack Kurtzman and William Chasen for hosting this epic conversation. Interviews by me, Steve Silberman. Produced by Tom Marshall and Zach Brogan. Art by Mark Dowd. Mastering by Matt Dwyer. Social media by Nick Sejas. See you next time, and remember, music is love. Osiris. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenged Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks With Johnny, streaming everywhere now.